Part 3. Pushing, Pulling, and Breaking Because things are the way they are, things will not stay the way they are. Bertolt Brecht Chapter 1. Notes on the Class Struggle I can be influenced by what seems to me to be justice and good sense, but the class war will find me on the side of the educated bourgeoisie. John Maynard Keynes The worker who gets a bad back from heavy lifting, and the worker who gets a bad back from sitting in the same chair all day, do not necessarily identify with each other. The worker who can't travel because she's working all the time, and the worker who can't travel because she has no job, and therefore no money to travel, can feel like they have very different problems. Where the class struggle is not obvious, class itself can seem like a strange concept. Everyone can seem like an individual commodity seller trading on the market, or a citizen with equal rights in a political process. The only way to change anything seems to be making exchange more equal and extending political rights further. The real social relationships at the base of society are invisible, taken for granted, misunderstood, or just unnecessary. From the point of view of an advertising firm or a politician trying to get a message across, there's no need to look at these social relationships. Society is chopped up into demographic slices based on political preferences or purchasing power. A sociolinguist studying how speech patterns relate to income might look at society and find six or seven or eight classes. But a situation of zero struggle is impossible under capitalism. Capital has to grow or die. Businesses have to be profitable and competitive. They have to push us to work harder for less. They have to attack our standard of living. Everything has to be shaped and reshaped to the needs of capital accumulation, or the economy stagnates. Capital is constantly looking for new and better ways to squeeze us. Our everyday lives are a struggle to survive, to make work as painless as possible, to keep capital from eating up every day of our lives. When we start to fight for our own interests, a contrast is quickly visible, a contrast between our needs and the needs of capital accumulation. This contrast is what class and class struggle are all about. As we struggle to survive, we see that other people around us are in the same position. We work together to fight for ourselves. As our needs come into conflict with the needs of capital accumulation, we come into conflict with the people who benefit from capital accumulation. Capitalists. As class struggle develops, deepens, intensifies, it becomes clearer who's on our side. Some of the guys working for a small construction company might have talked to the boss and thought he was a nice guy, but the friendly atmosphere quickly disappears when the boss starts to put pressure on the guys to work faster. When there's a strike or conflict, the manager, foreman, or supervisor who's paid only a little more than the rest of the employees is forced to choose a side. Taxi drivers, truck drivers, or nurses who are classified as independent contractors, go on strike. The police officer, who we might have had a friendly conversation with at the bar, is called in to evict squatters, to shoot rioters, or to break up the illegal picket lines of striking workers. 
the underlying class relationship becomes more clear. It becomes less and less of a simplification to see society as divided between those with loaded guns and those who dig. Quietly working or apart in our apartments, it's impossible not to feel alone, weak, and powerless. As we come together to fight for our interests, a different kind of community is formed. Prejudices are weakened or broken down. Class conflict comes out of the basic capitalist social relationships, but when it breaks out, it cuts across and cuts up the already existing communities. The stronger the community of workers in struggle, the more the religious, national, ethnic, neighborhood, and craft communities look thin and archaic. When we're stronger, more unified, more organized, more militant, we can more effectively fight for our interests and win real concessions. But it's not a simple matter of making demands, organizing, and then getting concessions. Class war is not like conventional war. Two sides do not meet on the battlefield and gain and lose ground. The interests, weapons, objectives, and edges of a community of workers in struggle are not simply set from the beginning. A strike can be an expression of working-class power. It can also be a top-down move by a union bureaucracy meant to head off any expression of that power. A squat can be a direct confrontation of our needs and the needs of capital invested in the land. It can also be a marginalized and irrelevant adventure for strange-looking kids. A defeat can be demoralizing and destroy a movement, but it can also lead to regrouping, widening, and strengthening of a movement. A victory can drive the struggle forward, but it can also mean institutionalization and dissipation of the movement. What counts as a real gain and a loss is not always immediately obvious. Whenever we start to fight for our interests, there's immediate pressure to look at things from the perspective of capital and to make demands that don't cause any problems. Sometimes, we'll make demands that are weak, divisive, or self-defeating all on our own. Demands for stricter immigration controls, or more barriers to entry into a job. Demands for more differentiation in the workforce based on education, skill, or experience. Demands that link our pay to the profitability of the businesses we work for in various ways. More often, though, community leaders, union bureaucrats, or politicians will make these demands on our behalf. The more we take profitability and the needs of the economy as given, the more we're defeated before we begin. Any government or political system is based on compromises between capitalists in different industries different politicians, different community leaders, and different sections of the working class. These compromises are based on a set level of exploitation, a set distribution of value and surplus value. Economic crisis and the pressures of competition force the capitalist class to rearrange these compromises and attack our standard of living. Working class struggles tend to disrupt these compromises by pushing in the opposite direction. Class war keeps coming back. Faced with a serious working-class threat, the capitalists of any country will respond with some mix of reforms and repression, co-optation and marginalization. They don't much care what we've demanded or whether we've demanded anything. Their goal is to end the disruption caused by our struggles. The question for them is what reforms will best keep us under control. 
They need to break up the community we've built up during and through the fight, or harness it to the needs of capital accumulation. They'll give concessions to one part of the movement and repress another part. They'll legalize one part and criminalize another. They'll promote some and fire others. If we're strong enough and unified enough, we can force reforms that are actually at the expense of profitability. We can force changes that haven't been done before or that push and pull the system in new and different directions. These kinds of reforms are bitterly fought by the capitalists. Still, capitalism is adaptable. Governments can be replaced. Laws can be changed. Major reforms are possible. Reforms that push capitalism to adapt and progress can become a relatively permanent part of the system. The balance of forces are rearranged. The community of workers in struggle is cut across. And exploitation takes on a different shape. Organizations, groups, attitudes that were previously seen as a threat to the system are neutralized and made into a part of the system. The terrain of class struggle shifts. Gains are turned into defeats. Some of the old communities and prejudices reassert themselves. Some new ones are formed. The community of struggling workers is fragmented. Progress within capitalism is built on the back of class struggles defeated in this way. The next time we press our needs against the needs of the economy, the shapes and strategies of a community of workers in struggle will have to adapt as well. We have to critique both the failures and the successes of previous movements or be quickly defeated. Capitalism can bend, but it can't bend into any shape, and it can't bend as easily in any direction. The more we push and pull, the more clearly we see the shape of capitalist social relationships what is essential, what isn't, how things relate to each other. Certain demands and reforms are not easily incorporated or begin to erode immediately. Capitalism pushed in certain directions quickly snaps back. Capitalism is based on class struggle, but it's also based on one side always eventually winning. Chapter 2. Collective Living It is a long way from a common laundry to a socialist dwelling. Karel Tiger. Looking at the overwhelming isolation of modern suburban housing, of hundreds of individuals and families cooking food, doing laundry, watching TV, staring at computers for hours by themselves, it's easy to feel nostalgia for a more communal way of living. But modern privacy and separation hasn't replaced family living. It works on top of it. The same cities where individuals live alone in the suburbs also have people who live with their parents until they have children of their own, or longer, and three or four generations are living together in the same household. This is real community. Real community that tends to impose social conformity to be conservative, and to overlap with strict and restrictive religion. Market isolation and fragmentation and conservative community play off each other. The teenager wants to get out of her parents' house as fast as possible. The middle-aged man gets married just so he's not alone. To be a full grown-up means to be alone, 
or alone with a family. Collective living outside the family is usually looked on as something for students, or maybe for young people just getting started with their lives, but not a particularly good idea. In the family household, cooking, cleaning, entertainment, and other daily activities are direct and within the small community of the family. For the individual living alone, these activities tend to take place as part of a larger group, the city block, the neighborhood, the city, but are no longer direct. The community is lost, and they tend to be simple market transactions, the laundromat, the restaurant, the bar, the movies. Since early capitalism, workers have packed themselves into small living spaces and split the rent. They may have still hoped to one day have a nice little individual cottage with a wife and kids and a garden, but their practical responses to their situation pointed in a different direction. Market forces continued to erode family life, and the reaction against this, the traditional family, showed itself to be restrictive and conservative. The obvious response was to look for some other kind of organized collective living. Unions, socialist parties, progressive architects, public health officials, early feminists, and artists came up with all sorts of ideas for collective living situations for the working class. In the more ambitious ones, private and family living space was restricted, and whole apartment blocks had integrated collective kitchens, gardens, laundries, sports facilities and self-defense classes, libraries, daycare, and schools. These achieved some important social changes. As housework was collectivized and centralized, it meant that there was less of it to do, and it could be done all at once by fewer people. This, and collective childcare and schools, freed women up to participate in work, sports, and political activities. Where possible, dense architecture reinforced the communal atmosphere, and shared meals and other activities created lively communities around these collective apartment buildings. These communities were, of course, denounced from all sides. Having unmarried women living in a building with men they weren't related to was promiscuous. Having collective daycare was unnatural. Collective schools, often run by socialists, were ungodly. Collective eating, laundry, and even front doors were an attack on the individual, and dangerously socialist. Against these attacks, collective living could be seen as a model that anticipated some future society where people lived and worked in collectives, and market forces had been tamed and socialized. But just as the democratic self-management of a business doesn't free it from the need to compete and exploit its employees, collective living does not free the inhabitants from the need to buy or rent land and buildings. By building densely and having collective facilities, some money was saved. But this did very little to eliminate the gap between what the average worker could afford and the price of decent housing. Without subsidies, Collective housing is only slightly more affordable than free market housing, and tends only to be filled with the best-paid workers. Where tenants split the cost of the housing according to need, there's an incentive to only look for new tenants who can afford high rent to subsidize the other tenants' rent. Alternately, 
housing costs can be brought down by having tenants do unpaid construction work, a strategy that can easily bring collective housing into conflict with construction workers and construction unions. Where collective living situations have really taken off and housed anything more than a tiny part of the working class, it's not through self-help and mutual aid, but with large subsidies and support from governments that had been taken over by socialist parties with an ideological commitment to collective living. Today, socialist parties don't even pretend to oppose capitalism anymore, and state intervention in the economy is accepted across the political spectrum. State spending on housing is much more likely to support family home ownership than any type of collectives or co-ops. The only remnant of an ideological commitment to collective living is with the semi-anarchist youth in whose collective houses the price of cheap rent is having to sit through excruciating consensus meetings or eat near-rotten food. Anyone today who said that apartment buildings lead to a socialist mentality would be laughed at. The massive concrete housing towers in Novi Beograd are bought and sold just like the somewhat less massive concrete housing towers on Chicago's south side. Even the rich are sometimes attracted to collective living. Sprawling suburban gated communities are located around an artificial pond and have quaint footpaths connecting them. Downtown condos use the community that allegedly forms around the pool in the basement, the common weight room or yoga classes, as a selling point. Isolation and conservative traditional community are still the normal state of things but collective living is no longer seen as a threat. Detached from a militant workers' movement, collective housing easily becomes a marginalized commodity. Simply living differently is a failed strategy. Chapter 3. The Unions a CIO contract is adequate protection against sit-downs, lie-downs, or any other kind of strike. John L. Lewis Occasionally, unions have made demands of governments or employers for better housing conditions. On the other hand, housing reforms have also often been seen as throwaway concessions, meant to distract from the main issues of wages, hours, and conditions. Although there have been unions that have built housing for their members, they usually found this to be a dangerous investment. If they go on strike, not only do they not get regular dues from the striking workers, but they also stop getting regular rents. For these reasons, except where unions have been completely integrated into the state, the unions have mainly affected the relations between people making the houses, the production side, not the consumption side of the housing monster. The nature of the building industry gives construction workers some basic advantages. Because house building still depends on the knowledge and decisions of skilled workers, we're more difficult to replace and in a better bargaining position. Also, housing still can't usually be built in one place and shipped to where it's needed. This means that construction companies can't pick up their operations and move to the spot on the globe with the cheapest construction worker wages. It also means that the housing market is largely local or regional, so construction companies can give in to wage increases without having to worry about competing with low-cost producers a thousand miles away. 
Although, if there's a depressed rural area, or another country nearby with cheaper workers, they can sometimes be shipped in daily or weekly. But the shape of the building industry also creates problems for us. Workers are divided along craft lines and working for different bosses or subcontractors. Also, both within and between trades, there are important divisions, in pay and working conditions, between skilled and unskilled workers. This makes it less likely that different workers will have the same experiences, problems, and demands, and will identify with each other, which makes it more difficult to organize and take action together. Construction workers were among the first workers to form organizations to fight for their interests. These unions, brotherhoods, associations, friendly societies, conspiracies, were diverse. They called strikes, sabotaged building sites, beat up scabs, negotiated with the employers, brought in socialist speakers, held dances, ran libraries, gave their members health care and unemployment insurance, paid for funerals of workers killed on the job or on picket lines, and generally tried to represent the working man. Over time, a mixture of militant strikes, economic and political crisis, and the fear of revolution forced employers to bargain with the unions and make a range of reforms. Union representatives were legally recognized. Bargaining procedures were written into law. Workers organizing at work were given a legal definition and some legal protections. What it meant to be a union narrowed. One of the most important reforms won by construction workers was the union hiring hall. Instead of working directly for a contractor, many construction workers get work through their union. Contractors tell the unions how many of which kind of workers they need, and the unions send out workers, usually in order of seniority, who's been employed the longest and who showed up to the hall that morning. This is a major rearranging of the balance of power between employer and employee. The boss can't move us around from job to job to keep us from talking to each other. A worker who gets in a fight with the company's foreman can quit on the spot and be reassigned to a new job the next day. The amount of crap we have to take from asshole bosses is greatly reduced. Hiring halls can also allow us more flexibility and make it easier to take time off. The hiring hall is an important limit on the boss's authority over his workers, but has advantages as a management strategy as well. Skilled workers are often difficult to find and replace. By going to a hiring hall, the boss can find whatever workers he needs without wasting time and money posting job ads and doing interviews. Apprenticeship and training programs are often jointly run by the unions and the building contractor associations. This means that the pool of workers available through the union have standardized skills, and contractors don't have to spend much time training new employees. Reforms such as hiring halls are fought or accepted by employers or fought, then accepted. There's a mixture of reforms and erosion of the reforms that can't be made functional for capital. Often, this simply creates labor market segmentation. The most skilled, best paid, most difficult to replace workers are organized in unions and work on commercial, government, and large-scale residential jobs. Less skilled, cheaper workers doing smaller, non-government jobs are not in unions. And at the edge of the labor market, repairs, 
small remodels, and additions are done by self-employed construction workers or workers doing side work. Union hiring halls tend to make the class relationship less personal. They don't change it. More work rules tend to be negotiated between union bureaucrats and contractors associations, as opposed to between the boss and the worker on the spot. Although how rules are actually followed and enforced is another thing. In either case, we still have to get up every day and work for them. The construction unions that run hiring halls tend to become essentially labor brokerages. They try to control as much of the workforce as possible through exclusive deals with employers and by controlling apprenticeship programs. They try to make themselves necessary middlemen, so workers need to go to them to get a job, and employers need to go to them to get workers. When the union leadership and the workers come into conflict, this control over access to work can be used against us, and militant or disruptive workers can be denied work. Whatever the claims of socialists in the labor movement, unions are not defensive organizations of the working class. Their focus is much narrower. The unions are concerned with their membership, who are workers at a specific company or a specific trade in a specific region. This limit may begin as a simple strategic starting point, but it means that workers from different unions, or workers in unions and those not in unions, can get pitted against each other. The construction unions are some of the worst here, because they organize on a narrow craft basis. The workers on a particular construction site can easily belong to a dozen different unions. This limits the pressure workers can put on contractors, let alone a developer. As the unions are legally recognized, this craft separation is reinforced, often with laws against solidarity between workers in different unions. This can easily mean that the unions are required to make sure their workers cross other unions' picket lines. The unions might not actively fight each other for turf, or actively harm the interests of workers who aren't members. They may not go as far as the United Farm Workers of America under Cesar Chavez, who organized patrols of the U.S.-Mexico border to keep out undocumented workers who might compete with their members for jobs or be used as scabs. But they definitely do not defend the interests of the working class in general. And the unions don't just defend the interests of their members, either. The workers in a union are not the union any more than the citizens of a country are the government. The unions have their own interests, which may or may not coincide with the interests of the workers they represent at any time. Union leaders perform a difficult balancing act. Their jobs are based on mobilizing us. They need to be seen as the head of a movement, the legitimate representatives. To do this, they need to offer something to the membership better wages, better conditions, more stable employment. They may even initiate certain types of struggles or support militant or illegal actions by workers in order to maintain their position. On the other side, they need to be recognized by the employers in order to get a contract. What they have to offer the employers is a workforce that's ready to work. The basis of the union contract is this compromise. Employers give in to union recognition, and maybe other reforms, and the union agrees to keep its membership under control, to prevent strikes and disruptions of profit-making for the duration of the contract. 
there's an arc to unionization. During the early stage of building a union, especially where the company and the government are opposed to unionization, the interests of the union leaders and the interests of the members can seem to be identical. The unions may be militant and intransigent. A real community of workers may be built by fighting the boss for a union. This community is built through the struggle. The unions are a partial expression of this struggle in an organization. But our power in the workplace doesn't come from being organized, but from being disruptive. As unions win contracts and are accepted as negotiators, the struggle has to end. If they want contracts, the unions have to clamp down on disruptiveness. The unions have to make proposals for how businesses should be run and to develop a spirit of compromise. Even when they don't completely sell us out, their negotiations are about how capital accumulation should be managed. This necessarily increases the distance between them and us. Where unions are thoroughly incorporated into the management of capitalist society, in a country, a city, or a particular business, they end up spending a lot of time enforcing the contract on their workers. This means heading off, marginalizing, short-circuiting, and undermining any kind of militancy from the rank and file. It's not that the unions sell us out and try to break up militancy because they're undemocratic, or controlled by politicians, or mobbed-up bureaucrats. The separation between union bosses and union members tends to develop for the same reason that a separation between workers and bosses tends to develop. Businesses need to be competitive. They need to keep costs low. They need to make us work harder for less. The interests of capital and labor are fundamentally contradictory. Any kind of workers' organization is eventually presented with a choice. Fight for our interests, or be a responsible part of managing capital. Even the most democratic organization that takes workers at work as its starting and ending point will ultimately be forced to support things that are against our interests. With or without unions, the basic class relationship means that construction workers have to keep selling ourselves on the labor market. On a daily basis, we tend to be detached and pragmatic about whether or not to join unions. We know that you often get better pay and more benefits in the union, and that working through a union usually means that the pace of work won't be ridiculously fast, and there's less likely to be piecework. At the same time, unions often have long apprenticeship programs, and may make it more difficult to move to a new area and have our skills and cards recognized. There also may not be as much work through the union hiring halls as through private employers, and the unions will require us to work exclusively through them. When there are not major struggles going on, we tend to see the unions roughly the same way we see working for a boss who's a nice guy. When there are, we need to quickly go beyond the control of the union or the movement is dampened, dissipated, and defeated. Chapter 4. Rent Control and State Housing Only Social Democrats could pacify the unemployed, direct the Volkswehr, and restrain the workers from temptation to embark upon revolutionary enterprises. Otto Bauer the free market in housing 
is supported and regulated by the state. Various levels of government impose all sorts of health and safety regulations, building codes, subsidies, taxes, tax subsidies, loan guarantees, and zoning laws that affect housing. The state does not intervene on behalf of the poor or interfere in the business of the rich. It tries to stabilize and unify a society that tends towards separation, fragmentation, and crisis. It balances the demands of developers, financiers, contractors, landlords, and the public, of capital invested in the land and the rest of capitalist society. Normally, the only interest the state has in controlling rents is in keeping high rents from putting too much pressure on employers to raise wages. Politicians will often use rent control that only applies to a tiny part of the housing stock, or that only puts very weak limits on rent increases to show they're doing something for the working man. Without a threat from below, the situation tends to be either low wages and low rents, or decent wages and high rents. When such a threat exists, it's a different story. The agitation, strikes, mutinies, insurrections, and revolutions that happened during and immediately after the First World War were responded to with all kinds of reforms. This was the beginning of serious rent control. In New York City, for example, landlords had taken advantage of wartime shortages to jack up the rents on apartments all over the city. In 1918 and 1919, thousands of tenants went on rent strike, supported rent strikes, and joined the growing tenants' leagues in the city. The actions succeeded in stopping some rent increases and evictions. By 1920, there were fears that so many renters would refuse to pay rent that the police and the National Guard simply couldn't evict them all, and New York passed tenant protections, including limits on rent increases. In 1915, in Glasgow, working-class tenants responded to rent increases by only paying the old rent or not paying any rent at all. Massive demonstrations kept the police from evicting people for not paying rent. The UK government, afraid that the rent strikes would lead to strikes in the Glasgow munitions factories, instituted national rent control. Tenant protections are passed to protect against tenants' movements. Rent control is passed to control working-class renters. But capital's movements are not a simple matter of government legislation. Limits on a landlord's right to evict tenants or on abuses like key money and security deposits are real gains, but they do not necessarily hurt capital invested in renting out houses. Especially when the market is stable, the landlord doesn't need to constantly evict tenants, and there are usually ways to get around the laws, like moving a family member into the apartment for a few months. Effective rent control is different. By definition, effective rent control has to limit landlords' profits. Since being a landlord, like any other line of business, is about making a profit, effective rent control makes renting houses a less competitive business. At first, this may just mean that landlords try to make up the difference by spending less on repairs and maintenance. The longer the rent control lasts, the more incentive there is for landlords to put their money into some other business. Serious rent control that lasts for any amount of time necessarily leads to disinvestment in housing. Rent control is a legal maximum price on a commodity. It pushes the flows of value as different lines of business compete for investment. 
Usually, an industry whose product is in high demand can raise its prices and attract more capital. Where there is serious rent control, real demand for houses will move above supply, but prices can't rise. Either the rent control will be repealed, or a black market will tend to develop, where housing is rented out at above legal levels, which undermines the effectiveness of the rent control. If the black market is cracked down on, and house rents are strictly kept at the rent-controlled level, it won't just be the landlord business that will become uncompetitive. As capital moves out of the business of renting houses, the market for houses shrinks. Developers and construction companies see their profits squeezed, which leads to disinvestment in house production generally. In time, this causes housing shortages. The state is then faced with a choice. Peel back the rent control, face a housing crisis, or go into the landlord business itself. A certain kind of state housing is a normal complement to the free market in housing. This is housing that is recognized as only for the very poor. Often it's falling apart, and usually has restrictive or humiliating rules. Rent collection may be combined with apartment inspections. There may be curfews or restrictions on visitors. It may be limited only to proper families married couples with children. Tenants' privacy is rarely respected. This kind of state housing works as a constant reminder to the rest of the working class that we could be worse off. It stops working this way the moment it becomes a desirable place to live for anyone other than the extremely poor, the moment it starts to compete with private landlords. Usually, the place where the state is most willing to compete with private landlords is where it is also the employer. In this case, it has a direct interest in keeping rents from putting upward pressure on wages. The first kind of housing that states built was often for their soldiers or for workers in key nationalized industries. Where it goes further than that, where the government starts building for the working class in general, where government housing actually competes with private landlords, it only does so in response to a serious crisis and strong working-class movements that need to be co-opted. The state will act as landlord, but it still buys the land from private owners, pays capitalized rents, hires private contractors to do the building, and borrows the money from banks or in the form of bonds, and so has to pay interest. Where the government owns enough land, or has strict enough land-use laws, land speculation can be severely limited. Assuming that state housing does not operate for a profit, the price of housing can be lowered. In this case, the landlord has been sacrificed for the good of capitalist society in general. On top of this, the state may provide subsidies, further lowering the price of housing. These subsidies, if permanent and regular, are essentially a collectivized form of wage increase. Instead of money paid directly to employees for working, the money is paid to the state, through higher taxes, who then distribute it in socialized benefits. This is a real, material gain, just like subsidies to lower public transit costs or free government health care. Just like a wage increase, it can improve the quality of housing we can afford. Since socialized housing is given to people equally, skilled workers don't usually get better state housing than unskilled, it tends to lessen the differences between rich and poor neighborhoods and to slow the creation of slums and ghettos. Still, 
Having the state pay part of our rent is expensive. The authorities may give in to this when they feel threatened. As a movement is repressed and institutionalized, the threat fades. Subsidies tend to be taken away. Private landlords may reappear. State housing may deteriorate and start to be seen as only for the very poor once again. On the other hand, state housing can become a regular part of the functioning of capitalist society. Tenants' unions can get state funding and become a respectable part of managing the housing stock, negotiating rents with the government. Where the state acts as a non-profit landlord, part of the gain in lowered rents can go to employers in the form of lower wages. In certain times and places, businesses have supported state housing as a way to keep wages low, especially businesses that produce for export. In the same way, a business may support government health care so that it can be in a better position when competing with businesses in countries where health care benefits are paid for by employers. One part of capital profits off another part's problems. Also, just because the state is not making a profit, doesn't mean that landed capital has been eliminated. As development happens and housing prices go up, the benefit to working-class tenants shrinks. Where the state pays private companies their costs plus a fair profit, there's an incentive for them to just jack up their prices and make more profit. While the state may simply be increasing rents to cover its costs, the increased rents are going to construction contractors or the manufacturers of building materials or the banks and investors, in the form of increased interest on loans. State housing also has problems that private housing does not. Getting into state housing may mean proving our incomes are below a certain level, and usually means waiting on a list until a place opens up. Once we get a place, we're probably not going to be evicted unless we stop paying the rent. But if we leave, we'll probably have to wait a long time before finding a new place people tend to stay in social housing as long as they can. Even if we're allowed to swap houses with other tenants in social housing, or to get some sort of government certificate of urgency that allows tenants in a bad situation to jump the line for new apartments, it doesn't change the fact that government housing tends to reduce tenant mobility. And reduced mobility goes hand in hand with reduced wages, as we're not able to move to new places for new job opportunities. Where state housing goes along with wage compression, shrinking the difference between the lower and higher paid workers, this reduced mobility can help keep skilled workers from moving somewhere else for higher wages, and therefore help lower employers' labor costs. The state is less likely to be a personally vindictive landlord or to demand huge rent increases, but it does not give us housing for free. Whether we pay rent to the local government or a private landlord, Housing is still a commodity. The house is bought with money, and the need to come up with rent money is a major factor pushing us to go to work every day. Chapter 5 The Second World Russian capitalism, in consequence of its lateness, its lack of independence, and its resulting parasitic features, has had much less time than European capitalism, technically, to educate the laboring masses, to train and discipline them for production. That problem is now in its entirety imposed upon the industrial organizations of the proletariat. Leon Trotsky
In February of 1917, the Russian workers overthrew the Tsar. There were massive strikes in Petrograd. There were several days of rioting. Police headquarters were looted, and the workers armed themselves. When the army was called in to shoot down the striking workers, there were mutinies. Workers began to set up factory committees. Soldiers began to desert in huge numbers. The Tsarist government collapsed, and a parliamentary government came to power. The eight-hour day was instituted. Unions were legalized. But the government was weak. There was an unstable situation where powerful armed workers' groups coexisted and competed with the government, neither in complete control of the situation. In October, the parliamentary government was overthrown and the Bolsheviks took power with widespread support from the workers. Russia pulled out of the war. Buildings, factories, machines and land, owned by private business, were taken over by the workers. Many private capitalists fled the country, leaving the workers to run things themselves. There was real hope for a new world without class and exploitation. By the summer of 1921, that hope was long gone. The power of the workers had been destroyed, and the new state had consolidated its power. Discipline in the army had been restored. The factory committees had been replaced by state-controlled unions. Strikes were illegal, and strikers were jailed, shot, or denied food rations. The Communist Party was managing a strange form of capitalism. There was no stock market, and the banks were nationalized. As land was taken over by the workers and then by the state, land speculation was all but eliminated, and a very few people had to rent houses from private landlords. Production was taken over by large state-owned enterprises. Production targets were set by the central government's plans. Prices were not set through free market competition, but were imposed by the state. The government stayed in power by a mixture of concessions to the working class and extreme police repression. With private investment and speculation clamped down on, the normal business cycle was disrupted, and the central plan guaranteed a continuous source of demand for housing. This allowed construction firms to make the large investments necessary to industrialize house production. Factory-made cement slabs were assembled into apartment buildings, sometimes several blocks long. This meant that housing that used to take more than a year to build could be built in a few months. It also meant that fewer skilled workers were necessary. These prefab concrete housing blocks may not have been pretty, but they did bring down the cost of housing. Even so, the rent the tenants were charged usually didn't even cover the maintenance cost of the buildings, let alone the construction costs. The state massively subsidized housing. This meant that the USSR often had the cheapest rents in the world, with workers often paying less than 5% of their income on rent. The workers in the Soviet Union got a large part of their wages in a socialized form, free health care, free education, subsidized transport and housing. What was left of the individual hourly wage was a less strong incentive to keep them working hard. On top of that, the government was committed to a policy of full employment. There wasn't an unemployed population competing with those in work, and there were constant labor shortages. This meant 
that the fear of losing your job was a less effective way of getting the workers to work harder. The managers of state-owned enterprises needed to find alternative ways of putting pressure on the workers. Housing was useful here. For those working for the key nationalized heavy industries, state housing was usually distributed through the employer. This worked like company housing. Skilled workers could be attracted and kept working for a firm by the promise of good housing. Strikers, workers slacking off on the job, and other troublemakers could be not only fired, but evicted also. Workers who didn't get their housing from their employer most often got it through the municipal Soviet governments. But here, too, workers who were thrown out of employer housing for breaking labor discipline were not allowed into other forms of state housing. And in both kinds of state housing, there were often long waiting lists to get an apartment. This created an incentive to stay in the same apartment and help to reduce the turnover of skilled workers. But not all housing was directly run by the state, local governments, or nationalized firms. Plenty of people owned their own private houses, and the state-owned banks often provided low-interest loans to people wanting to build houses for themselves. The state also provided loans for co-op construction, where people pooled their savings and had houses built and then owned their own place in the building. And the private landlord was never completely eliminated. There were always landlords renting out rooms or whole houses, whether legally or on the black market. Landlordism was regularly denounced in the papers. State housing was the norm. Co-ops were much more expensive and tended to be seen as a status symbol. Someone who paid the extra money for a co-op was housing themselves and freeing up state money for the building of socialism. They tended to be owned by skilled workers and party bureaucrats. Individual homeownership tended to be associated with backwards rural people or unskilled workers living on the outskirts of the city who still wanted to have their own garden. The different types of housing were viewed very differently than in the free world. Differences in tenure still overlapped and reinforced differences at work. And at work, Russia was even more like America. Workers sold their ability to work to an employer. The firms sold the things that workers made and reinvested the money to enlarge production. Workers got enough to survive and keep working. The class relationship was the same and work was just as alienating and miserable. Workers were no more motivated to work hard, because management claimed to be socialist and the factories had red stars painted on them. Dead labor had to move and expand, and could only do so by exploiting workers. The management of factories in Russia used many of the same strategies as American businessmen to squeeze more surplus value out of the workers. Piecework time, and motion studies. The difference was that before the revolution, Russia was on the edge of the global economy, developing as an auxiliary to Western European and American capitalism. Although the communist elements of the revolution were quickly destroyed, largely by the Communist Party, the revolution had destroyed the power of private investors, bankers, and factory owners. The Russian state then wholeheartedly took the viewpoint of capital invested in production. Everything was organized around the goal of quickly developing industry, especially heavy industry. The Soviet Union 
became a model for rapid industrialization. It was, at times, attractive to nationalists on the edges of world capitalism, from Latin America to East Asia. The second world seemed like a way of moving out of the third world. There was a strong commitment to collective forms of living left in Russia after the revolution. Housing blocks were built with shared repair shops, laundry and preschool facilities, dining rooms, and even kitchens. These, and new laws giving women legal equality, did mean women were much freer to participate in work and party political activities. Social life was being radically reorganized, but the changes were more the result of building modern capitalist society than of dismantling it. Urbanization happened at a speed never before seen in world history. The number of people and the time and distance people were commuting steadily increased. Extended families disintegrated, and people increasingly lived in nuclear families. Housework was not eliminated and still fell mainly on women. Party propaganda even glorified the role of the Soviet woman as mother and housewife at times. Home and work were increasingly separate in time and space. Being stuck at home was no less isolating than in the free world. Having hiring centers on the ground floor of apartment blocks no more overcame the contradictions between home and work than today's migrant Chinese construction workers have overcome these tensions by sleeping in tents on the construction sites where they work. Value existed as a social relationship in Russia and everywhere the Russian model was followed. Things did not get from the people who produced them to the people who needed them, except by being bought and sold. Value still linked separate competing enterprises producing commodities. The workers in Soviet tractor factories and coal mines saw the things they were making as the property of someone else, the state firms, not just as useful things. Competition was severely limited but not stopped. Limiting competition allowed the central planners to protect and develop industry and to make some material concessions to the working class. Money capital did not siphon off all the surplus value from industry, and interest on state loans was low. The prices of many commodities, such as houses, were heavily subsidized. Prices were imposed, not formed by competition on the free market. A largely socialized wage and a seller's labor market gave workers some power in the workplace. This meant that management often had trouble imposing new production methods and intensifying work. Caught between the hostility of the workers and the production quotas of the central planners, the quality of commodities suffered. Problems caused by defective products cascaded through the supply chain. There were shortages, especially of consumer goods. Prices could not rise to meet rising demand. There was rationing, long lines at the nearly empty shops, and a widespread black market. Different firms tried to hoard resources, skilled workers, and centrally located plots of land, and bartered with each other and with local governments to get the resources they needed. The USSR was capitalist, but malfunctioning capitalism. And most of the rest of the Second World was less ambitious than the USSR had been. The leading ideology of the first world claims that a businessman selling commodities is the same as the worker selling most of her waking hours. 
the dominant ideology of the second world, claimed to be classless as well. But the contradiction between the needs of the economy and the needs of the workers is where class comes from. When the Cuban state paid employees of its nationalized industries their regular wages to build houses that would be rented to them at subsidized rates, it sold this as a plan to socialize property and benefit the workers. At the same time, the rest of the workers left at work had to sign agreements to maintain the same levels of production with fewer people working. Several years later, productivity had been raised in industry and the government discontinued the construction micro-brigades, regular construction worker wages were lower. Profits did not go into the hands of individual private capitalists, but the core problem of the economy was the same. How to squeeze as much surplus value out of the workers as possible. Chapter 6 Getting Rid of Monsters Modern man wants meat without blood, tobacco without nicotine, commodities without sweat stains, war without corpses, police without truncheons, truncheons without bruises, money without speculation. Gilles Dove Whenever the need for a real critique of the system is strongly felt, distorted, self-defeating pseudo-critiques multiply. To complain about parasitic, speculative capital is to support good, productive, industrial capital. To complain about the obscene profits of big corporations is only to support the prudish profits of small businesses. To complain about the rich, white men who run the government is to imply that the poor woman of color, if put in the same situation, could do things differently. The billionaire, whose company depends on there being masses of people so poor that they have nothing to sell but their ability to work, and who pays them just enough to keep them in that position, donates some of the profits he squeezes out of them to alleviate poverty. All the critiques of immoral businessmen, or the attempts to set up ethical businesses, do not make value flow through the economy according to ethical rules. Clichéd criticism of capitalism only works to make criticism of capitalism into a cliché, combined with enough moralizing and monsters appear everywhere. Evil robber baron capitalists, lying politicians, greedy speculators, sadistic police, insane war criminals. Calling something a monster is admitting that you don't understand it. There are plenty of bosses, bankers, landlords, and developers that should probably be severely beaten in an alley somewhere but demonizing them only covers up how the system continually recreates repressive police, asshole bosses, and two-faced politicians, not to mention weak, timid, prejudiced, and isolated workers. And half-critique can easily be turned into a dangerous caricature of itself. The response of the newspapers to the rent strikes, riots, and protests of working-class New York after World War I was to denounce the evil Bolsheviki Russian Jew landlord. More often, though, the leftists who explain the system only by its worst consequences just play into the hands of the politicians who denounce these consequences in the name of the system. An important step in getting rid of monsters is to stop thinking of them as monsters. 
Capitalism means suburbs and slums, condos and ghettos. It means evictions and security deposits, cold, moldy, infested apartments, and high rent. It means repetitive, boring, dangerous work, unemployment, and homelessness. It means isolation, imaginary togetherness, and real conservative communities, prejudice, racism, and political correctness. It means speculation and regulation, growth and stagnation, crisis and war. It means landlords and loan sharks, police and politicians, bureaucrats and bosses. But all these things come about because they work. They grow out of and reinforce the basic capitalist social relationships. These social relationships are not optional. If we want food, housing, or anything else, we have to buy it. And the only way we have to make money is to sell our ability to work. The pressures we feel in everyday life are the same that explode in the wars and crisis that disrupt everyday life. Dead labor needs to squeeze living labor. Capital needs to move and expand. Our everyday activity is turned against us and seems like a force of nature, a monster. The more our lives are controlled by abstract forces beyond our control, the more a cult of personal responsibility grows. The more the needs of the economy impose choices on us, the more social behavior is treated as a moral issue. The more complex reality is, the more people want simple answers. We lash out at whoever is nearby. The system creates conflict that is, at times, slow and subconscious, at others, spectacular and intense. This constant chaos and infighting keeps the system running. To the extent that we can see who our real enemies are, we can come together to fight for our interests. A community of workers in struggle can undermine ethnic or national communities and break down divisions and prejudices. Fighting side by side, we relate to each other in new ways, we discover abilities we didn't know we had, and we begin to feel our power. Demands are won, and often undermined. In order to grow and deepen, the struggle has to go beyond its previous limits, involve new people, and change strategies. It has to become more radical, or stagnate. As struggles develop and deepen, more becomes possible, horizons widen. At a certain point, when worker struggles are pushing and pulling almost to the breaking point, a critique of the system as a whole becomes a necessity. In these revolutionary times, similar ideas about a future society have popped up. In a society where no one could own the means of production, where things were available free for use, no one would be forced to sell their labor to someone else. This would be a society where there was no need to measure the value of things because value would not be necessary to link separate commodity producers. People would have to make things directly for each other without their having to be bought and sold in between. This could only happen if productive activity was freely chosen and an expression of our lives, not forced on us in exchange for a wage. Making and doing useful things would not separate itself in time and space from the rest of our lives and then try to take them over. In such a society, there could be no separate economy or government with its own needs, and there would be no need for bosses and police to enforce those needs. Constant conflict would not be necessary to divide and rule the population. 
community would be possible everywhere in everyday life, not a defensive shell to retreat into. This perspective has appeared again and again where workers' movements have reached a certain point. This is not about comparing the present to an imaginary, classless, moneyless future and finding it lacking. It's about imagining what it would take to collectively stop living our lives the way we have been up till now. It's about developing our everyday struggles to the point where we're in a position to break capitalist social relationships once and for all. We need decisive ideas and elegant actions.